This is Guns and Butter. First charge of that is materially aiding a terrorist organization. These are the significant charges. These charges and the conspiracy to aid a terrorist organization both carry with them 15 years each. So by virtue of those charges, I am now facing again and was facing on the first day 30 years in prison were I to be convicted. The Sheikh asked me if I would make a press release on his behalf. It was a press release which um, he dictated to Mohammed Yusri, who translated it for me. And a number of weeks later, I was in touch with Reuters. It was no secret thing. It was not done clandestinely. It was not a message that said, Abdul the parrot sings at midnight. It was a very political press release, not unlike a hundred others I've taken out on behalf of other political prisoners I've represented. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Lynn Stewart. Lynn Stewart has been a practicing criminal defense attorney for 27 years in New York City. She has worked tirelessly to defend political prisoners victims of the war on drugs, and indigent defendants. She has represented many well-known defendants, including David Gilbert of the Weather Underground, Richard Williams of the United Freedom Front, and Sekou Odinga of the Black Liberation Army. Lynn Stewart was arrested on April 9, 2002, by FBI agents for allegedly providing material support to terrorists and violating Special Administration Measures, or SAMs, imposed by the U.S. Bureau of Prisons. Although the terrorist charges were dismissed by a federal court in July 2003, the Department of Justice later vindictively reinstated them on different grounds. Since her indictment, Ms. Stewart has traveled the country raising awareness about her case and its implications for all lawyers. Her arrest was in connection with her defense of one of her most famous clients, Egyptian Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman popularly known as the Blind Sheikh. Sheikh Omar was tried and convicted in the New York City Landmarks bombing conspiracy case. Lynn Stewart, welcome. I'm happy to be here, Bonnie. Lynn, you're the attorney for the blind Egyptian Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman. Who is he? Well, Sheikh Omar, as he is referred to often, um, is a blind Egyptian cleric who was educated at Al-Azhar University, which is akin to Oxford in the Western world, very ancient in Cairo, Egypt. He was received a Ph.D. there in religious studies. He became an activist in Egypt and was concerned mainly with Egypt during his entire career, I would say, as a preacher and then later as in America when he spoke out about Egypt. He has basically been an opponent, first of Sadat and then later of Mubarak, 
And I think it's fair to say that Egypt is a strong ally of the United States. Mubarak's regime gets money second only to the amount of money given to Israel and is noted for its human rights abuses. Their jails are full of dissidents. Torture is a regular thing, and this isn't coming from me or the Sheikh. This is coming from Amnesty International and the Middle East Watch. Even our own State Department has indicated that the state of affairs there is such that probably there will be no democracy that will come by, quote, democratic means, meaning that the elections are one-man elections. It's Mubarak. He runs. He gets elected. And this has been so for 20 years. But he is a very, very important ally to the United States. And so it's tolerated in Egypt because he is our friend. The Sheikh came to the United States uh, after being placed on house arrest in Egypt he got a visa in the Sudan. There's always been a sort of a cloud around that visa. No one's quite sure how he got it exactly, except that it was legal. He came over as to preach in this country, and, of course, he intended, as the Wall Street Journal reported way back, he intended to use it as a bully pulpit to get up there and preach against the United States' support of Egypt and urge American Muslims to oppose that, etc. And indeed, during most of the time he was here, which was, I believe, from 90 to 93, when he was arrested finally, he did travel all over the country speaking out. And his his mission was always Egypt. It was not, you know, let us commit acts of terrorism wherever we may be or any of those things. At any rate, as my kids would say to me, cut to the chase, Mom, cut to the chase. He was arrested by American authorities and made to be part of a very large conspiracy. At first they said he was being taken in for immigration violations, but after a month that changed and they placed him in the middle of a conspiracy not to bomb the World Trade Center, but to bomb New York City landmarks. Of course, World Trade Center 1, this is in 1993, had occurred, and uh, the men who were arrested in connection with that were people who went to the mosque, one of the mosques, I might even say one of the many mosques in which he preached, but he was never arrested for it. He was never charged with the World Trade Center 1, although it was his image, the man in the red turban hat with the dark glasses, the gray galabea that he wears as a badge of office. It's not really office. I can't. It's hard to uh, describe the role a sheikh plays within Islamic life, but basically it's as a advisor and interpreter of the Quran and counselor to people. At any rate, he was never charged with that, but he was charged in 1993 with being part of this conspiracy, which was to bomb New York City landmarks, and he was charged with sedition. We had a very, very long argument about whether or not it was an appropriate charge for any of these men. At any rate, I was just minding my own business when one day I got a call from Ramsey Clark and he asked me if I would be interested in coming into that case. 
I, of course, knew about the case. I, of course, knew about my friend Bill Kunstler's involvement in that case, that he had been forced to get off it because he had represented a number of these men in connection with the case at other times, most notably a fellow named Nocer, um, who he had defended in a state court action for murder and gotten him acquitted of the death of a Zionist by the name of Meyer Kahani. At any rate, Bill was out of the case. The sheikh was pro se, and his people had gone to Ramsey and said, you know, this is not a good state of events. The man does not speak English. He is not familiar with the United States system of the courts and justice, or uh, I guess I'd almost have to say injustice, but he needs representation. And Ramsey came to me and he added to that, that if there was no one who was willing to undertake that representation, it would really make us appear to be to the people of the Middle East who were strong supporters of Sheikh Omar as if we were uncaring that the left in the United States does not understand the importance and the direction of Islamic movements, and that would I be interested, would I at least go down and interview the sheikh? And so this is now November 1994. I take myself down to the federal lockup in New York, which is right behind the courthouse, and I have an interpreter with me, and I interview the sheikh, and we hit it off. There's no question about that. I found him to be, even that first day, very highly intelligent, with a tremendous sense of humor, with a tremendous wisdom about the ways of the world and the predicament he was in. But I went back to Ramsey, and my husband Ralph and I, and I said, I'd love to do this case, but I can't be prepared. I can't be ready to do this case in two months. It was scheduled to begin in January 95. I said, I know this judge. I don't think he's going to give us any extra time. He's got a big case, 11 defendants. He thinks it's ready to go. I can't do it. I'm a preparation freak. I have to know every paper. And in this case, interestingly, there were numerous tapes. When I say numerous, I'm talking about boxes of cassettes, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of conversations, because this case was driven by an informant. This informant was working with the FBI and working with the Egyptian Secret Service at the same time. He was extremely clever. He got the sheikh to say certain things while carrying a tape recorder in his briefcase. They were basically responses to Islamic questions, but in the hands of the government, they became the tools by which they were able to indict him. But this fellow also recorded everything. He recorded himself when he called his bank to get his bank balance. He recorded himself when he called the medium to find out what his future might be. His name was Imad Salem. He received a million dollars from the government, a cash, not counting, being moved, being relocated, all of the expenses they incurred on his behalf. He received a check for one million dollars, and what he received from the Egyptian government, one can only guess at. 
but he was the main witness against the sheikh. In fact, he was the only witness against the sheikh in any telling way. Everyone else who testified was really so scarred, I guess you would say, or so so susceptible to uh, cross-examination. Notwithstanding that, we did this entire trial. I cross-examined Imad Salem and the others. We put on a plans to put on a large defense case after Ramsey, this is, had convinced me that I had to take the case. And I always like to tell the story that I learned that afternoon, how Ramsey had run the Department of Justice, because when I said, I can't do this case, I can't possibly be ready, I can't do it. He said to me, if there's a baby in a burning building, and you're the only one nearby. You can't say, I don't have my fireman's boots. I don't have my fireman's hat. You've got to rush into that burning, but you've got to save that baby. And that's the situation we're in here. There's no one else but you to do this, and it should be done, and it must be done, and I'm asking you to do it. And, of course, by the end of the afternoon, I had agreed to represent him. We then went into the trial as I've described it. It was a trial that lasted 10 months was planning we were planning to put on a very large defense case consisting of expert witnesses from all over the world to speak about what does a sheikh do what is he required how does he fit into the entire islamic religion in terms of the way mosques are set up and who how a visiting sheikh what he becomes to the people of that mosque etc uh, we also were going to put on experts to talk about the Quran and what the terms the government had defined for the jury, terms such as jihad, what they meant, what was the obligation. All of these factors were going to be brought out in, a, as I say, we, we had three or four witnesses. We had witnesses that were ex-CIA to say the sheikh's concern had only been Egypt. He would never get up and, and urge anyone, and in fact, they had no urgings of anyone to attack the United States in the United States. And uh, the judge prevented us from the defense. Lynn, what specifically was Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman accused of? He was accused of conspiracy to commit sedition. Sedition, as we know, is a thought crime, a speech crime, which tends to effectuate the overthrow of the government. It's the last stop before treason. But, of course, not being an American citizen, he could not have been accused of treason, but sedition. And we argued long and hard that none of the persons that were accused in this case could be accused of sedition because, you know, let us assume that the government's case was true, that they indeed were plotting to set off a bomb in the uh, Holland Tunnel or the George Washington Bridge. That does not mean that the government of the United States will fall. And in fact, of course, when an attack was carried out many years later on the World Trade Center, it was not directed for the government to fall. So we thought that the premise was incorrect, but the judge uh, allowed the government to go forward based on that premise. And so that was what we defended against. He was also accused of being part of plots to assassinate Mubarak when Mubarak came to New York. This was related by a next-door neighbor of his who 
at the time he took the stand, was accused of an arson in which two people had died and only very latterly remembered this conversation he had had with the Sheikh many years before. We felt he was a totally discredited witness, but it was Imad Salem, and it was one tape in particular where he was asked about whether or not such things would be acceptable in Islam, and he basically told them, no, they wouldn't be acceptable, that he should think about something else and that he should talk about something else. And But still in all, he didn't say, don't do this, you know, go home, forget about this. He wasn't emphatic enough is what my feeling is now. And so ultimately he was convicted of the conspiracy, and he was also convicted of being part of a plot, another conspiracy to assassinate Mubarak. I'm speaking with criminal defense attorney Lynn Stewart. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, the conspiracy charge, did that have to do with the 1993 truck bombing of the World Trade Center? Yes. When I said World Trade Center 1, that's what I'm referring to. Of course, he was never charged. He was actually not even in New York when it happened. He was in California making a speech at the time, and he had been, courtesy of the government, wiretapped for two months before that happened and ever after, and there was never any reference to this at all. As I say, the men who were ultimately convicted of that did attend, some of them attended his mosque. Lynn, what about this Imad Ali Salam? I understand he's a former Egyptian military intelligence officer and also an FBI informant, and he's the person that recorded the sheikh's comments and set up these meetings, etc. Obviously, this was some sort of a sting operation by the government against the sheikh. Isn't that correct? Oh, definitely. It was definitely directed at him. And it was definitely, in in our view, in which we actually ultimately argued to the jury, directed against him as a favor to the Egyptian government because the sheikh had a tremendous following in Egypt. And as I say frequently, without making any value judgments about fundamentalism, uh, I've been around enough Christian fundamentalism in my life to know I don't like it. But I also know that uh, the people of the Middle East organize around this. And since I am a believer in self-determination, I can only say that the sheikh, because of his honesty and his, his incorruptibility, had a tremendous following. His brilliance, his fearlessness, his willing to take on the power structure was a, a enormously respected person in the Middle East when this all broke, and it was crucial to the Egyptian government to remove him from the scene because, of course, as such a person, he could galvanize people in a way that no one else could. So, uh, They basically sent him out, and as you say, a sting operation, yes, except unlike other sting operations, I don't believe, in my view, the sheikh ever did any more than than give an opinion, which he is obligated to do under Islamic law, as to what actions people should take. He never participated, he never discussed, he never was part of any criminal planning whatsoever. And what about Ahmad Ali Salam? Now, was he charged in this? I mean, obviously he was a government operative, 
but was he charged himself in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing? No. He indeed was an extremely slippery person. His background was like one of those out there in a cloud somewhere that it's very hard to pierce and, and get through. And we have jokingly remarked that someday you'll pull into a Middle East restaurant in Omaha, Nebraska or something, and there will be Imad Salem running the restaurant. Although he has been reported to have been cited in places like the Sudan and other places. So we're not really sure what Imad is up to anymore, but he certainly took the witness stand, was thoroughly discredited, and yet the jury, when the push came to shove and they were told, you have a right not to be afraid, took one look at the 11 defendants, most of whom were recruited by Imad, were paid for by Imad, came to a safe house that he had rented with FBI money, materials which he had paid for and brought to the FBI, allegedly to make ANFO bombs, which the government admitted by stipulation would never have blown up anything because they were all the wrong mixtures, that the people who he recruited to work were sort of folks that kind of hang around a mosque, which are not unlike some of the folks that are found in the left. They're needy people. They wanted to belong to something bigger and more important than they were. And so when this uh, engaging Egyptian came and urged them to become part of this, they did so. The Sheikh never was a part of that. This was all engineered very cleverly by Salem. And as you pointed out, Imad Ali Salem actually bought the explosives, and he planned the bombing himself. Exactly. Took the videotapes, spent an afternoon speaking with a, a Palestinian businessman in this country, and, of course, talking politics, as people do. That whole conversation came in, of course, as evidence of this Palestinian's uh, intent to be part of this, even though all he ever did was sell Salem the uh, fuel oil that was part of the component, although it was not part of a component that would actually work. And at the time all of this was going on, Imad Ali Salem was in the employ of the U.S. government. Definitely in the employ, reporting back to them, you know, generating reports, having agents conduct surveillances where he was attending, being wired on occasions, very much a part. Now, Lynn, if all of this came out at the trial, how could the jury convict the blind sheikh, Omar Abdul Rahman, and some of these other people if this was obviously all set up by the U.S. government? Well, you know, we had experienced World Trade Center 1, the truck bombing, this was a trial that was held not far from that site, and um, the jurors, basically, who, of course, were selected by us, the defense, I think when the government got up on summation and said to these jurors, you have the right to be free from fear, and invited them to make themselves feel better by locking up these Middle Eastern guys. I think that that was, they just went for that plea to their 
innermost fears themselves to their sense of wanting to be good Americans and go along with what the government was telling them to do. And uh, they just succumbed to that. They convicted every single person, people who were so much on the periphery, including the sheikh, who was on, if you will, the upper periphery because he was a lead defendant because of his importance, but who whose involvement was so minimal. I tell you, people always remind me that when I spoke to the press after the verdict, I had to keep wiping my eyes. I was crying because I really felt so betrayed by that jury that had seen this case for over 10 months and should have been able to put it all together and not just be led astray by the government. Well, particularly if the judge was advising the jury that they had the right to feel free from fear, if the government was setting up some sort of a terrorist act, then wouldn't they have the right to uh, feel... (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. One would think so. And we also brought that out, you know, that without EMOD, nothing would ever have, there was no thought in anyone's mind. Uh, There was no motive to do this whatsoever. But also the fact that the judge would not let us put on a defense, that he gutted our defense, that he basically said this will only confuse the jury, also played a large role in this. Because I think if they had understood the context in which this happened, it might have helped and it might have given us a springboard on which to sum up. But the Sheikh himself was also accused for the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, the truck bombing. Well, they did it in a backhanded kind of way. They've never actually charged him or accused him or convicted him. They've put it in to the landmark bombing case as another act in which some of these men may have been involved. In other words, they're allowed to charge numerous acts without actually having to prove them all. The government can construct a uh, indictment in this way. They'll say there was a conspiracy to bomb New York City landmarks. As part of that conspiracy, this happened, that happened, that happened, that happened. And one of maybe 40 or 50 things they listed was the initial World Trade Center bombing. And so they were able to keep it in the case, but they, of course, were never able to prove that the shake had anything whatsoever to do with the planning, had anything to do with what they like to say, that he was the inspiration, he was the the person who made the other people think this was what they should go do. But I said to people in those days, when I first came into the case and spoke to the press, I said, you know, if a bishop of Boston gives a fiery sermon against abortion, and the people who carry out abortions, and some persons go out and kill abortion doctors, they do not arrest the Bishop of Boston. So Sheikh preached, but he never came even what I would say legally close to urging persons to do this or indeed any criminal act. Now in the Sheikh's preaching, he is obviously a religious figure, but he is also a political figure. Yes. What were his politics that were so threatening, say, to the U.S. government, or, well, more specifically to the Egyptian government? Well, I think that his politics were that Mubarak should be replaced, he should be gone, he should be overthrown, 
that that government should be replaced by an Islamic government, and that it was only then that Egypt could be freed. Of course, the last thing the United States would want is an Islamic government like the Iranian government, even though that's a different branch of Islam, because Egypt serves such a tremendous, it's the most populous and probably one of the most important Middle Eastern countries. So any threat to Mubarak, and of course the Sheikh had a tremendous following in Egypt. He was, I can only say he's revered. People, particularly in New York, cab drivers, when they recognize me, they're they're just they're so humbled and so you are the lawyer for Sheikh Omar because he's maintained an image to the people of being this extremely straightforward and honest person that does not shirk from saying it the way it is to such a degree that at one point and it's still continuing, Mubarak supplies every uh, mosque every Friday with the speech they are to give. They are not allowed to ad-lib. They must give the government-approved version of things. So he, he posed this tremendous threat, and I think without any question, the United States government, as it's done in other cases, in other ways, agreed to take him off the scene. And that's also borne out, of course, by what happens once he gets in the jail, how he is treated differently from other prisoners in the sense of these special regulations meant to silence him. Where is he in prison presently? Well, uh, my understanding is, and this is not official, I know where he is. He is in the Maxi Maxi prison in Florence, Colorado, which has been cited for all sorts of sensory deprivation, all sorts of cruelties. It's a uh, single-person cell prison in which no one has any contact with any human being whatsoever, including the guards. The The food is shoved through a slot. There is no opportunity for people to meet and greet. Now, I understand that after the World Trade Center on 9-1-1, they constructed a new wing to Florence, and they moved all of the Muslim prisoners that are being held in this country. I'm not sure what the exact number is. When I say Muslim, I mean Middle Eastern Muslim convicted of crimes having to do with militant Islam were all moved to that particular wing of this prison in Florence, Colorado. And that is where he is now. Ramsey Clark actually visited him on one occasion out there and was able to at least speak with him. Of course, there was with Ramsey Clark a government interpreter and an assistant U.S. attorney who listened to every word of that conversation. I'm speaking with criminal defense attorney Lynn Stewart. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So, Lynn, you represented the Sheikh, and he was convicted of conspiracy and sedition, correct? Right. And that was with regard to the plans for these landmark bombings. Right. And then let's fast forward then to... What was it, about six months after the September 11th, 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center, you were then arrested 
correct? That's right. Could you describe the day of your arrest? I'd love to. Uh, we were uh, home. We live in a a brick row house in Brooklyn, two stories. I was upstairs in my usual mad dash to get out to go to court. It was a spring morning in April, April 9th, actually, and my husband, Ralph, for some reason on this morning was actually out there ahead of me. Usually, I'm yelling at him to hurry up, but he was out there ahead of me. He was out on the stoop, uh, you know, that's the stairwell that, uh, or the outdoor stairs from the house, and I heard him say, I always, I always say, you know, for those folks on the West Coast that are not aware of what a stoop is, it's where the people who don't go to East Hampton for the summer spend their summers sitting on the stoop. But at any rate, Ralph was out there, and uh, I heard as I came down the stair, I heard him say, I don't see any warrants, and I don't see any badges either. I thought, uh-oh, this is trouble. I looked out through the door, and I could see, uh, gathered on my my postage stamp size front lawn, three or four persons that I immediately knew to be law enforcement. I feel, let me get out there. So I step out on the stoop myself, and I first say to Ralph, I say, calm down, calm down. Whatever it is, we'll have you out by lunchtime. And I said that because Ralph is the activist. He's out there with the schools, you know, fighting the powers that be in an attempt to change education. He's been fighting it for 40 years. He gets arrested going to PTA meetings, etc. So my assumption was they had come for him. I'm the lawyer. Why would they come for me? But I was wrong. And the FBI stepped up and said, we're not here for him. We are here for you. Well, it is a defining moment. You know, your your life sort of screens past you in front of your eyes. And after a minute of thinking about it, I knew they couldn't be there because I forgot to put the stamp on my income tax or anything, that this was serious business. There were six FBI men. They had their handcuffs out. And I, I was immediately, as soon as I thought it through, I said, this is outrageous. They are arresting me because I'm a lawyer. They're arresting me because, you know, this is, I realized that it had to be something in connection with no criminal event. And, I, and it was replaced by real anger because I said, what are they, they're coming after me now as part of their greater we will save you from terrorism, something like that. I had no idea what the actual charges were. But that was the smell I had in my nose about the arrest. And when I was taken, of course, in handcuffs downtown to the FBI building, I had my mug shot taken. I, all the trappings of a full custodial arrest, I always like to say, unlike that other Stewart woman who, of course, walked in with her attorney under his umbrella and just checked into the marshal service and was never uh, arrested at all. At any rate, later that afternoon, uh, I was taken in front of the judge. I knew what the charges were then, and if anything, they were adding uh, fuel to my fire. I knew I was getting out, but it didn't do much to assuage my indignation. And uh, when I got to the courtroom, it was filled with lawyers. And I mean, you know, you can't practice law in a place like New York for 30 years and be in the courts and be a trial lawyer and not have 
people know who you are. Let's just put it that way. And the courtroom was just filled with all types of the guys in the Armani suits with their Rolexes, as well as, you know, the Legal Aid Society and the public defenders. And people came up to my husband, Ralph, in the hallway and said, I have I have all the shares in my co-op or I have the deed to my condominium. She's not going to stay in jail. Whatever it takes, we're going to get her out today. So, you know, with knowing that when I got in there, uh, you know, I just, when they asked how we pled, how I pled, not guilty was not enough. So I said emphatically not guilty. And, of course, that was the beginning of what I consider to be my attempts to stand up to these charges and just speak out on them on every occasion, because I think that they did not expect that. They expected some kind of caving in or or some kind of being cowed or just uh, falling apart. They didn't expect me to fight back. And it started that afternoon when I said emphatically not guilty. Lynn, what are you specifically charged with? Well, I am charged along with two other people that I'd like to mention. The first is my interpreter, Mohammed Yusri, um, born in Egypt, now an American citizen, who's been here for over 25 years. He is the interpreter. And as I say, if I'm 100% innocent, and I am, he's 200% innocent. He never did anything that wasn't approved by one of the lawyers in the case. He never did anything except interpret. Actually, the uh, the Translators and Interpreters Association has taken up his case and stands behind him. He also, he suffered by reason of this, he was an adjunct professor at uh, York College, which is part of the City University in New York. He was immediately terminated. He's never been able to get his job back, even though the college would have hired him. The higher-ups in the administration, in my view, clearly uh, knuckling under to the national imperative that is comes in the form of an FBAI agent who visits you, would not rehire him. And although he's taken this up by grievance and now will probably sue the city university, it doesn't help very much to put chicken in your pot or, um, you know, help you pay for your daughter's college education. So he has been hurt terribly by this in a way that, that I haven't been. I've been still permitted to practice law. The third person here has been hurt worst of all. He's Ahmed Sattar. He was an out-front political activist on behalf of Egypt. He appeared a number of times on Frontline on PBS and uh, was outspoken as an opponent of Mubarak. He has been in jail ever since April of 2002, and he has uh, he was a person, an American citizen of Egyptian origin, who worked in the U.S. Post Office, had four kids and a wife living in New York City, and as I said, but he was our paralegal during the trial and immediately thereafter, and then remained as a paralegal for myself, Ramsey Clark, the legal team thereafter, although he was cut off from being able to visit the Sheikh. So he is the third party in the trial, and he is accused of the most serious charges that is actually plotting with Egyptians 
to commit terrorist acts, to actually commit acts of kidnapping and or murder. Mr. Usri and I are not connected to that at all. We are accused of materially aiding a terrorist organization, the organization being the organization that the Sheikh had founded in Egypt back in the early 80s. So um, I am also accused of, uh, if you can imagine this, lying to the government (laughs) <laughs> As I say, uh, amazing. I don't think we can counter sue and say, well, the government's been lying to us in in ways that are far more serious than any lie I might have told. And we are so confident factually that we can overturn this particular charge. They're claiming that because I signed on to a group of regulations promulgated by the Bureau of Prisons through the Justice Department and agreed not to disseminate, among other things, any news to news media. And then I gave a press conference and did disseminate news that therefore I was lying to the government at the time that I signed this document back in 1997, three years before the dissemination and actually five years before my arrest. Under the law, you can't be punished for acts which precede events that you have no knowledge of at the time that you're doing the signing. So factually, legally, and every other way, we think that this is a charge that will not stand up in court. The secondary charge against me is also a fraud charge, and I'm accused along with Mr. Usri and Mr. Sitar of, it sounds more complicated than it is, accordingly that I was at a prison where the sheikh was being held, and I conspired with Mr. Usri and the sheikh, and then thereafter with Mr. Sitar to make the guards not pay attention to us anymore, that I somehow or other, and the words of the indictment are, distracted the guards so that they would not be listening in on our conversations, which they had no right to listen in on anyway. And I, we also feel that this is is really a... A red herring completely, because anyone who's ever done prison work knows that when you're talking to a client and the guards become too interested, you react to that in ways to make them not be so interested, because you want to have a private conversation. You don't want them overhearing it. And first of all, I don't think after reading all these transcripts that I actually was distracting them. I said when I was a a young thing in the 60s and my hair was as long as my skirts were short, I might have distracted a few guards, but this uh, elderly lady, no way. So uh, that is the secondary charge. And something about the other part of that charge, the second phase of that charge was that I was defrauding the public, or I guess that's who it is, because the the warden of the prison had called me to say that the sheikh was no longer taking his insulin. And she said that they were doing everything possible to urge him to take it. When I this was inquired of me by the family of the sheikh through Ahmed Sattar, 
I basically said, I don't know what they're doing with him. I guess you can put out there that he's no longer getting his insulin, but who knows what's really going on? Because you never, you know, the prison authorities, they lie just through their teeth about everything. You never get a clear picture unless you talk to the person himself. So they claim that I knew better because I had spoken to the warden about this. So that way you also feel comfortable confronting purely on the factual grounds. And, of course, the first charges, the ones I mentioned earlier, that is materially aiding a terrorist organization. These are the significant charges. These charges and the conspiracy to aid a terrorist organization both carry with them 15 years each. So by virtue of those charges, I am now facing again and was facing on the first day 30 years in prison were I to be convicted. I'm speaking with criminal defense attorney Lynn Stewart. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. With this first charge, this had to do with a press release that you released on behalf yes, of the Sheikh? Good. Thanks well, for asking that because it is important that people know this. I first signed on to these rules and regulations prohibiting him from making a press release or indeed talking to the press or talking to anyone but his lawyers and his immediate family. And, of course, his immediate family were unable to visit because they could never get a visa from the government to get over here. And so he was basically phone calling his lawyers once a week and phone calling his family once a month and then probably I'd say maybe four times a year myself, Ramsey Clark, or Abdeen Jabara would visit him at the prison. He at that time was in Rochester, Minnesota, in a federal medical facility connected, at least connected by virtue of the work, with the Mayo Clinic, which is also located there. He, um, on a visit that I made there in June, or in May actually, of 2000, it was at that time that the Sheikh asked me if I would make a press release on his behalf. It was a press release which he dictated to Muhammad Yusri, who translated it for me, and a number of weeks later I was in touch with Reuters. It was no secret thing. It was not done clandestinely. It was not a message that said, Abdul, the parrot sings at midnight. It was a very political press release, not unlike a hundred others I've taken out on behalf of other political prisoners I've represented. It basically was a comment on what was occurring between the negotiators on behalf of his group and the Egyptian government. A number of years earlier, they had agreed to a ceasefire. When they agreed to the ceasefire, actually, interestingly enough, Ramsey Clark had a press conference about the fact that the Sheikh agreed to have this ceasefire, and of course, the government did not come after him at that time. I'm very fond of Ramsey. Ramsey is one of my strongest supporters. I think people will be hearing more from him at the trial, probably, about this. But suffice it to say, a press release by Ramsey Clark is not the same as a press release by Lynn Stewart. It may have something to do that I'm not a former attorney general and that my father was not a United States Supreme Court justice. 
or it may just have to do with the government and the way they see things when it's a male-female divide. But with all that out there, they did arrest me. They never arrested Ramsey, and I was confronted in June with whether or not to deliver this press release. And, of course, for credibility's sake, it had to come from me because I was the person who had most recently visited him, and it was really a decision that was made by me to do the release because I felt that part of my representation was keeping the Sheikh alive for his supporters, that if he was without support, there was no way that this case would ever get off ground zero. There was uh, Maybe that's an unfortunate use of words, but he was basically, he was entombed in Minnesota. He was not allowed to listen to the radio. He was not allowed to get tapes that weren't listened to by the FBI. Of course, he was unable to read a book because he's a blind person. The book would have had to have been in Braille and in Arabic Braille. So he was basically cut off from the world. And it was very important for his case, upon the consideration of all the attorneys who represented him, that he be kept alive for the people of the Middle East who were his supporters. Because we know in political cases, the ground sometimes shifts. And when it shifts, things happen that people might not have believed possible at an earlier time. We were very anxious, and he was very anxious, to be restored to Egypt, even if it meant he had to serve jail time there. We had that in mind. We also had in mind the thought that perhaps the United States would at some point want to make a concession to the Egyptian people and restore this man who was considered a great hero. All of those things played a role in this, and it was upon consideration of of my obligations as his attorney that I decided to make this release and got in touch with Reuters in Cairo and, in fact, gave them this release, which basically said we have been involved in negotiations with the government for a number of years. It does not appear to me that there are any results. The jails are still full. Torture still continues. But I am in the middle of Minnesota. I am not there. It is you people that are have the hands-on, that are on the ground, and you know better than I do. But it just seems to me perhaps there should be some reconsideration of our tactics or words along that line. Of course, people had an immediate reaction, a very strong reaction. They uh, opined that the sheikh was withdrawing his support for the ceasefire. And, of course, the government has couched my entire case that I made a press release in which he withdrew support for the ceasefire, which is not at all what the press release said. And indeed, the following day, in a phone call made to Ramsey Clark's office when he was read the news in the paper, he clarified by saying, I want it to be said that I am not withdrawing my support for the ceasefire. I'm just wondering if we are negotiating strongly and heavily enough. So that was the gravamen of the press release that I made. And when Ashcroft came to New York on the day I was arrested and first held a press conference at Ground Zero, he was asked by the press, well, what happened after this press release was made? Were there attacks? Were there bombings? What happened? He said nothing happened. 
because indeed nothing has happened in Egypt since 1997. Notwithstanding that, of course, and uh, this is the part that I think is 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 pretty shocking to people, and it, it is to me also because Ashcroft that night went on the Letterman show, went on that show to pat himself on the back and to crow about how he had saved the world from terrorism, that he had arrested an American citizen lawyer here in New York for terrorism, and that just showed the administration's dedication to saving the American people from terrorism. And he then went on to sing his song, his song which basically was something about, you know, the Eagle song, in which I understand one line is, In the United States, we shall have no king but God. Well, it came as a surprise to me, because as I say, I didn't think we had any kings here at all, and I thought God was an open question, that you could assume even those people who had no God were um, part of the American scene, and certainly as far as God was concerned, he comes in many, many forms in this country. So that's General Ashcroft, and General Ashcroft leading, cheerleading, the audience at Letterman against me and against really uh, in favor of what he did. We all know they hold up those signs, but still in all, that a, a sitting attorney general with a case pending should go out in front of millions of Americans and so prejudice any persons about this case by this kind of shenanigans is really just shows his lack of understanding of, of the entire way in which trials are to be conducted and the ethical considerations that lawyers have and that certainly prosecutors should have. So that was uh, April of 2002, and ever since then I've been out there speaking out as much and as often and to large groups and small about this case and and what it means. Lynn, now... With regard to your case, when does it come to trial, and how can people help you with this? Now, your case is coming up very soon, isn't it? Right. We had a um, a hiatus because the judge in the case agreed with us in part, and he did dismiss the first two charges. That happened last summer. But then, of course, the government, in too government-petulant uh, manner, came back and said, oh, you're not going to have those charges? Well, try these charges, Judge. And they re-indicted us for materially aiding on a new theory. Instead of materially aiding by communicating, we now are charged with materially aiding a terrorist organization by virtue of of having a uh, providing personnel. Whether this will fly or not, whether the judge will dismiss or not, we're still in the process of finding out. We've submitted motions. They've submitted their answers to our motions. But the trial is scheduled for May 17th. And we have urged people all over the country to put New York in your summer plans, to come to New York and attend the trial. I know many people out in the Bay Area already have New York in their summer plans because of the Republican Convention and the promise of the New York police to arrest a 1,000 people a day 
That was what came out in the news last week. But if you're planning to come for the Republican convention, plan on coming to the trial. We think it will last a couple of months. We think it will probably still be on in August. So why come to the trial? Because what's most important, we have found, and as Professor Arthur Kanoy lately departed, but our my great hero, as he said, trials like this are not one because of the brilliance of the lawyers in the courtroom alone. They are one because there are people standing on the doorstep of the courthouse, and they are supporters, and they won't tolerate a verdict that is anything but an acquittal. So we're urging people to come and be those persons, not only standing on the courthouse steps, but sitting in the courtroom and allowing themselves to be part of a a changing kaleidoscope of people who stand for the Constitution, who stand for the right to counsel, who stand for all of the things that are good in the jury system, and who also, of course, stand for the kind of reforms we all want to see take place, the anti-racist, the anti-class-driven system as a whole. But we are very aware that having that courtroom packed with supporters is very important, not just for the tone of the courtroom, but also for jurors to see that whatever decision they may make, that if they make a decision that favors us, they are not alone, that this is something that other people consider to be the right decision, too. Well, Lynn Stewart, thank you. Thank you. something happening, yeah. I've been speaking with criminal defense attorney Lynn Stewart. Lynn Stewart's trial begins on May 17, 2004, in New York City. Visit the Justice for Lynn Stewart website at www.lynnstewart.org. That's www.lynnstewart.org. Contact the Lynn Stewart Defense Committee at 351 Broadway. Third floor, New York, New York, 10013. By email at info at or by calling 212-679-6081. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yara Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. To leave comments or order copies of the shows, call 510-848-6767 extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying?
Ask yourself for peace Give thanks, live life, and release You dig me? You got me?